Thank you. Be seated. Take your Bibles if you've got them and turn to Acts chapter 9. If you don't have your Bibles with you but you've got a smartphone, uh, there's a website you can go to. It's just fpcgoodlitzville.com slash Saul to Paul and all the scripture for today will be there. Um, the notes actually, the four main points that we'll get to in a little bit will be there. But uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope you bring those, Put uh, open it up to Acts chapter 9. Let me ask you a question, all right? So, growing up, or even now, what is or what would be your dream job? Like that job out there that you think, man, that's the job I always wanted, or I'd love to have, or if I could have any job, that's what it would be. When I was growing up, I had a, I had a, a goal. My dream job was to be an NFL quarterback. And... uh I had a good backup plan, though. If I, I couldn't be an NFL quarterback, my, my backup plan was astronaut. And uh, if I couldn't do that, I was going to be an actuary. And if you don't know what an actuary is, just go look it up and you'll see how nerdy I was and how it precluded me from being either a quarterback or a, uh astronaut. But, you know, you had these dream jobs. All right, what about you? What's your dream job? Somebody tell me. What what would be your dream job and nobody say the one i'm in right now like no we don't want that kind of sentimental stuff all right anybody baseball player so shocking lester just shocking all right all right lester part of i don't think we've announced this the goodlettsville city uh church league softball champions are first baptist church goodlettsville all right not the team that i help play for the other team the the team, all right? Somebody else, dream job. Rock star. You are a rock star, Anne-Marie, right? Every Sunday morning from 1030 to 11, right? So here's the thing. If you had a job out there and you think, man, I really want that job. I mean, it's not a dream job, but it's better than what you've got. And you're like, I really want that job. You're going to put in an application, right? Or you're going to put in a resume. And what are you going to try to do on that application or that resume? You're going to do what? Make yourself look good, right? You're going to try to look as qualified as you can for that position. And even sometimes when you think, I may not be qualified for this position, I'm going to make it sound like I'm really qualified for this position because you want the job. That's kind of the idea, right? Well, I read this week about some people that probably need some help with their resume and application skills. All right? So, for instance, there was one guy that applied for a job, and it needed a cover letter for his resume, and his mom wrote and signed the cover letter. Or when an application was sent out and it said, why do you want this job? The answer that was given was to keep my parole officer happy. Under achievement, somebody listed that they had donated 14 gallons of blood so far. And maybe if it's a blood donation job you're applying for, that'd be good. Somebody wrote they were fluent in multiple foreign accents. Not languages, but accents. And somebody wrote that he was in the top 85% of his class, which means that he was in the lower 15%, right? Like that's not, some of you will get that after lunch. That's not good, all right? Um, or in qualifications, one person, one lady wrote that she had a twin sister who has an accounting degree, so obviously I'm good with numbers too, because it's twins, right? And under references, you know those part where you give them names of people that are going to say good things about you. One guy wrote his references were Bill, Tom, and Eric. And that's all. That's all he wrote. Bill, Tom, and Eric. So here's the question, alright? 
We've been talking all summer about these encounters with Jesus and how people were changed by them. Let me ask you this question. If you could fill in the answer to this question, what would you fill it in with for this statement? More than anything, I want God to use me too. How would you fill in that blank? More than anything, more than anything, I want God to use me too. Take the gospel to my friends, overcome an addiction, help someone in need, share the gospel in a new place, just make it through this year of school. More than anything, I want God to use me too. Can I just tell you something real quick? That is a revealing question for a couple of reasons, a revealing statement. First of all, it shows that's at the heart of who you really are. And some of you had a hard time even coming up with anything. Like, I don't know. Some of you got big plans, and some of you can't think past tomorrow. More than anything, I want God to use me too. Over the summer, what we've talked about are these encounters that people have had with Jesus and how they have shown what, what it takes to, to have an encounter with Jesus, what one looks like and what happens on the end of it. And what happens at the end of all of the encounters we've seen, except for the one where the guy walked away sad and didn't accept the offer that Jesus gave, is that people's lives are changed and they do significant work for the kingdom of God. Today, what we're going to talk about is one man who if he had built a resume for the job that God was calling him to, it would have been the worst resume in history for that job. And yet God used him as much as he has ever used any human being outside of Jesus in the history of the world. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul. Now, Saul is a guy that is a major player. This is not the first time we see Saul. In fact, just a couple of chapters earlier, we are introduced to Saul. And anybody remember how we're introduced to Saul in the Bible? Stoning of Stephen. And so the first follower in the book of Acts to be killed for following Jesus is Stephen. And Saul, it says in there, is there giving his approval as he's being stoned, as he's being killed, Saul is like, yeah, that's what needs to happen. And so Saul was still breathing threats. That's a, a very picturesque word. It's a, a, an image of Saul literally speaking death. He is saying things about Christians and about people that are following Jesus. And it is he is breathing fire, breathing threats. Murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he requested letters from him in the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, which was the way they described people that followed Jesus in that day and time, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here's the setting. This is what it tells us in Acts chapter 9. Saul, now most of you, if you grew up in church or even on the periphery of church, know what's going to happen here. You understand the story, but I need you to get the background of it, that Saul is literally going on a... Uh, excursion to arrest people for following Jesus. He is kind of like a, a his own special forces to arrest people for following Jesus. He's the persecution police and he has authority from the high priest to do whatever he wants to do when it comes to these people. And as he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him 
Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want to stop there for a second. We're going to walk through these verses pretty quickly and then look at four things that are important for us. But I want us to stop here because I think this is an important little moment. I highlighted the word me here. Let me ask you this question. All right, just without getting theological on us for a second, without giving church answers here. All right. Who was Saul persecuting? Christians. Who was he arresting? Christians. People. Followers of Jesus. People that were a part of the church. Now, we know, because most of us have read the story, if not, spoiler alert, that the voice is from Jesus. Who does Jesus say Paul or Saul is persecuting? Jesus. Now, see, that's one of those things you can read over and go, hey, I see that. But there is significant theological meaning in him saying, why do you persecute me? For a couple of reasons. First of all, It shows that there is no separation between love for Jesus and a commitment to his church. Because for Jesus, his church is the thing that he died for. It is the group that he gave his life for. In fact, Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting it? Why are you persecuting the place where they gather? He says, why are you persecuting me? He is saying that there is such a connection between Jesus and his church that they cannot be separated. Jesus calls his church his bride. He calls it his body. You cannot love Jesus and not be an active, participating part of his church. To do so is to say, I love you, Jesus, but I don't like your bride. Now, let me just tell you something. If somebody walked up to me and said, Brother Law, I really love you, but I really hate Susan. That's not going to fly. Amen. Hey, guys, you really should have been louder on that. All right. I mean, like I was giving you an opportunity there. It should have been going for it. Nobody's going to walk up to me and say, man, I love you. I just don't like your wife. That's not going to fly. You can't say to Jesus, Jesus, I love you. I just don't want to be a part of your church. I know you're here. You're at church, okay? Many of you are a part. Many of you are active parts of this congregation, and I'm thankful for you. But here's what I want you to understand. There's this movement out there. There's this belief out there that you can somehow find Jesus and follow Jesus without being a part of his church. And that is nowhere taught in the New Testament. In the New Testament, if you are following Jesus, you are an active, participating member of his church. And here's what I want to tell you. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to be a part of a local church. doesn't have to be this church. We'd love for you to be, think about being a part of this church if you're not a part of a church. But to love Jesus is to be part of a church. Based on all the Bible, you need to be involved. You need to join. You need to get involved in ministry. You need to be a contributing member. People say, well, the church embarrasses me. It embarrasses me sometimes too. I know it embarrasses Jesus, but here's the thing. So do you. No amens right there. Right? And if Jesus wants to such be a part of something that he says, you're persecuting me, when he's talking about the church, then who are you to say, I can't be a part of that? All right, that's my soapbox for a minute. We'll move on. Who are you, he says. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Lord. <laughs> who are you? I don't, I don't even know who you are. 
And this moment, he says, why are you persecuting me? He's like, I don't remember persecuting the bright light that comes from heaven and blinds me. In fact, he thinks, I'm working for you, God. If you were God, which I assume you are, because it's a, this light that's blinding me from heaven, it can't be anything natural. If you were God, I'm working for you. I'm getting rid of all these people that are against you. Who are you? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Get up, go into the city. And you'll be told what you must do. Now, here's the cool thing about this passage of Scripture in particular. It's the conversion of Paul. When Saul becomes Paul, when he gives his life to Jesus and begins to follow him, becomes the most significant missionary in the history of the world. And we have this conversion story told three times in the book of Acts. Here in Acts 9 is the first time. But two other times when Paul is put on the spot and told to tell people why he follows Jesus, he gives his testimony, which is just a reminder that the greatest evangelistic tool that you have is your testimony. He tells his testimony to kings. He tells his testimonies to leaders. And in the midst of telling it, he tells a little more detail a couple of times. And in one of those tellings of it, in Acts 26, you don't have to go and turn over there, but you can just kind of write down that, that somewhere in your notes, Acts 26. He says that there's another line that Jesus uses, which is very descriptive and interesting, and we'll come back to it a little bit later to talk about how God had been working on his heart. He says that when Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right after that, before he goes into, who are you, Lord? He says, it is hard for you, and this is going to be amazing, are you ready for this? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I mean, that blessed you, didn't it? How many of you know what a goad is? Not a goat, a goad. How many of you know what a goad is? A couple of farmers out there, all right? I got a picture of a goad, maybe. There it is. Look at that. This is the best I could find, all right, of a goad that is descriptive, all right? And so when they were plowing back then, and Jesus said, it's obviously like medieval, uh, so this is not when Jesus was around but same principle. They had oxen, and oxen would do the plowing for them, and occasionally the oxen didn't want to walk or work. And so when they didn't want to work, what would happen is someone, they would take this long stick with a sharp point on the end, and they would goad the ox. They'd poke the ox, and it would, the ox would obviously not be... Now, I'm not... By the way, just a little note here. I'm not going to give any comment about the fact that the woman is the one prodding in this picture, y'all. Draw your own conclusions about that kind of stuff, all right? But, you know, goading the ox. And sometimes when the ox got really, really mad, it would start to kick, like it was trying to kick the prod. But the problem is, he could never get to it. He tried to kick against it, and it never worked. And so in Acts 26, God says... Paul basically says, I've been trying to get your attention. I've been prodding you. I've been poking you. I've been goading you. And you keep kicking against it and you get more mad and you get more upset and you get more angry and you persecute more people and you're doing more wrong things. Quit kicking against the goads. Y'all use that this week somewhere, all right? You get mad at somebody, just quit kicking against the goads. Just quit it, all right? And so he says, it's me, Paul. You say, what is he talking about? Well, throughout the book of Acts, you see this building. Then two chapters before, he watched Stephen die. And as he watched Stephen die, even though he looked unaffected, something inside of him had to say, why is he doing that? Why is he willing to do that? The goads were bothering Paul, wounding him. And he was getting more violent and kicking against them. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless 
hearing the sound but seeing no one. Just sometimes that's the way it happens. God's working in your life. God's really moving. And the person next to you is getting nothing. You're in the same worship service with the same songs and the same sermons and the same stuff. And you hear from God and God's prodding your heart. God's goading you. God's getting you ready for something. And you turn around like, man, wasn't that awesome? And the person's sleeping next to you. I don't know. But Paul hears the voice of God. And Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. And here's the picture you got to hear here. Saul was considered a mighty man of God. And here he is on his knees, blind and unable to do anything for himself. Saul, the one who thought he saw so clearly, is now blinded and cannot walk on his own. Saul, the one who um, seized others, is now being seized and taken forward. Saul, the one who broke others like a hammer, is now broken by God. Here's something that's interesting. You know, and I, throughout this sermon, I've interchangeably used Saul and Paul. Because Saul's name gets changed. And in the Bible, when somebody's name gets changed, it's significant. Now, here's what's fascinating about that. Most of the time when somebody's name gets changed, it's to something grander and bigger. And so you think about when Jesus changes Peter's name, he changes it from Little Rock to Big Rock. Changes the name of Israel to one who wrestles with God. Here, his name gets changed from something grander to something weaker. So the name Saul. Anybody remember Saul in the Bible? Who was Saul in the Bible? King, right? It's a mighty name. He wasn't a great king. In fact, he ended badly. But the people of Israel still considered Saul a strong, kingly name. Royalty. Paul means small, little, insignificant. And so Saul the mighty becomes Paul the small. Now, if it just ended here, that wouldn't be a big deal. But throughout Scripture, we see him referring to himself as the chief of sinners, one unworthy to be serving God, a bondservant and a slave. Let's read the rest of this passage. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And Ananias says, Here I am, Lord, I'm ready. He says, Get up and go to the street called Straight. And the Lord said to him, To the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so he can regain his sight. And Ananias says, wait, 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 Lord, um, I, I, I don't think you, I don't think you heard, I don't think I heard right. I, I could have sworn you said Saul of Tarsus. I know that's not what you said, but it sounded like Saul of Tarsus. And God's like, no, that's, that's who I said. Now, for us to get kind of an understanding of what it's like, and I'm going to say this and some of you are going to like it, and that's too bad, all right? For us to get an understanding of what it's like, it'd be like you awakening in the middle of the night and feel this strong urging from the Lord and saying, hey, I need you to go two doors down. There's a guy that's hanging out at your neighbor's house, and he's come to inquire about what it means to follow me, and I need you to go down there and talk to him. Um, he, he, he's got kind of a ZZ Top beard, and he, he, wears a, he wears a turban on his head. His, his, his name's Osama bin Laden, and uh, you need to go talk to him about what it means to follow Jesus. See, we hear Paul, and we're like, oh, Paul, missionary Paul, we love Paul. At this moment in history, when Ananias is called by God to go talk to him, Saul is the biggest enemy of the church. And I was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Saul's looking for me. We're hiding from him. If he finds me, he's being arrested me and we're going. He goes, listen, I, God, I've heard about this man. 
how much harm he's done to your saints. He has authority here from the chief priest to arrest anybody that calls in your name. God, I know you're probably aware of this, but I just want you to know, he's done a lot of bad things to a lot of your people. And if I go to him, he's got the authority to arrest me right away. But the Lord said, go. For this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias left and entered the house. Then he placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So here's the thing about what happens. Let me just give you a couple of things that I observe in here that I think speak for the whole message as we've done this summer. And the first thing that we see in this passage, the first thing that we see throughout these gospel presentations of what happens when Jesus encounters us is this. We have to recognize that God is constantly pursuing us. The thing that that little additional thing about the goads adds to this story is that this isn't the first time God's shown up in Paul's life and said, here I am. God has been speaking to Paul again and again and again and again. And God speaks to each and every one of us, pulling us to himself. And sometimes he's going to speak through circumstances and life events and situations that are difficult and hard. It's going to feel like you're being prodded. It's going to feel like we're being poked. It's going to feel like we're being goaded. But in the midst of that, we must recognize that Jesus is pursuing us. I mentioned C.S. Lewis a couple of weeks ago. He was an atheist literature professor at Oxford. And he said this about himself. He talked about how God was constantly seeking him. And he says sometimes it was painful. He called himself the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. Drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. He talked about how sometimes God has to do painful work in our lives to remove the things that are necessary in order for us to follow him completely. One of my favorite set of books is the Chronicles of Narnia. I love the way C.S. Lewis writes that. In the middle of that, uh, those books is one called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And one of the main characters there is a guy named Eustace. It's a strange kind of, um, it's one of the stranger stories out of all of those. But Eustace is a kid that becomes a dragon because he has a hard heart and he won't listen and he does evil things and he becomes a dragon. And there comes a point when Eustace says, I'm tired of being a dragon and I want to do it, I want to be back. He wants to escape being a dragon and there's the Christ character in the book named Aslan who represents Jesus and he leads him to this pool that's completely clear and he tells him that he will help to make him clean. Lewis writes and what most people think is like he's giving his own story and he talks about how the water was clear and it looked like if he could just get in everything would be great and he starts to walk in and Aslan says first of all you have to undress you have to take the scales off and so he starts scratching himself and he peels off scales and before long stuff starts peeling off and he can see as he's discarding it on the side there's this pile of scales that are nasty and ugly and dark and he thinks he's got them all off he's so excited and he goes to step in the water and as he goes a step in the water he looks down and all of his body his feet and everything are back completely scaled over just like he was 
So he steps back and he claws away and removes the claws and does every, removes the scales and he puts them all to the side and he walks back to the edge of the, nothing's changed. He steps back and the third time he peels it as hard as he can. He scratches all of those scales off because Aslan said I had to be, I had to be uh, naked when I went in. I had to have my clothes off. And so he does that scales off and he steps back. Nothing's changed. He says, just as I was about to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw all the rough and hard and wrinkled and scaly just as it had been before. And after the third time, Aslan said, I didn't say you have to do it. Let me be the one to do it. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. And the first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. When he had peeled the stuff off, just as I had done the other three times, only it hadn't hurt, I looked over and it was lying in the grass, except it was much thicker and darker and worse looking than what I had taken. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water, and it hurt like anything for a moment. After that, it became delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found all the pain had gone. And then I saw why I turned into a boy again. You see, there are a lot of us that are trying to rip the scales away. And we are furiously trying. And God is prodding us to turn our lives over to Him. And we are chasing after everything we can imagine to fill it up. And it only works when He does the work. What's he prodding you about? What hurts in your life? What's painful right now? It's not a punishment God's doing for you. It's not because God hates you. It's because he loves you. God is working in your life to restore you, not to bring retribution. Are you responding to the goading or are you like Paul, just getting angrier and angrier and farther away from the Lord? The first thing that has to happen is we have to realize that God is pursuing us even in our pain, even in our difficulty, even in everything that life is throwing at us. The second thing is we have to understand how helpless we are without God. When's the last time you felt completely, utterly helpless? When you were helpless and you realized it. When's the last time that you realized you could do nothing about your situation? This past Monday... Susan and I celebrated 18 years of marriage together. We got married at the age of five. And we, you know, we've 18 years. Our marriage is an adult, right? We've entered into that phase. It's just crazy to think. And so one of the things that we always try to do on our anniversary is we try to do something a little different. We, we don't want to, I mean, we always go to dinner and we always have a great dinner together, but we also like to do something a little different. And so this year, the different thing we did is that we went canoeing as a family. All right. We went to the Harpeth River and we went canoeing the six of us together. Yes, Maddie, Ava, the whole crew, because we're a family. That's what you do, right? And so we went canoeing, and this is the way the boats ended up as we were getting into uh, the Harpeth River, all right? In one boat was Susan and Eli and Ava, and the other boat was me and Luke and Maddie, okay? And so they put us out. I don't know if you've ever been canoeing. Um, Probably most of you have. Uh, But, you know, they put you out, and uh, I had some inexperienced canoers, like, you know, all of us. And we were really hoping for some good instruction. 
And the instruction we got was sit down and row. And they pushed us off and you're off. Good to see you. We're glad to know. And so literally 32 seconds into the canoeing, I was stuck on some rocks sideways in my boat with Luke holding his paddle like a baseball bat, kind of doing this. Maddie screaming, and I'm not exaggerating, we're going to die, you're going to die, like, like, everybody stop, and I'm, you know, I'm like, what, I don't, what am I doing, I don't know, we finally get off that rock and get going, and uh, a few minutes later, I made Maddie ride in the other boat, because I couldn't handle that the whole way down the river, right, for two hours, and so, she's in the boat, so it ended up being Luke and I in a boat by ourselves, now, here's what I want to tell you, I love my son, he is a, he's funny, he's smart, he's a lot of fun to be around. Um, professional canoeing is not in his future, all right? And so I realized very early on in the trip that if this boat, this canoe was going to make it to its destination, the sole responsibility for that fell into my hands to guide and direct and paddle us down the river, okay? And so we did. The, the river was low that day, apparently. You know, this is stuff they don't tell you because you don't get any instruction. And so that meant all the rapids had rocks that you would settle on. And I don't know if you've seen Luke and I, but Luke was in the front. I was in the back. And let's just say the weight distribution was not even. And so when you're in the back and the weight distribution's not even, when you get on a rock, it settles on the back. And so you got to rock it and try not to fall out and all that. And so several times we found ourselves stuck on a rock. One particular moment we found ourselves stuck on a rock, Luke fell out of the boat. His paddle is going downstream. And it's just Luke and I now with only one paddle. It's just me and the boat, one paddle. And we are near the end. At least that's what I thought at the moment because... Um, my prayer life had been as strong as it had been in a long time about God. This has to end at some point here in a moment, Lord, please. This needs to, we're, we're got to be done. And we got stuck, the worst we got stuck the whole day on the last set of rapids. And we are not going anywhere. This is not the rocket off. This is not the take the paddle and push yourself off. This is not, let's figure this out. We are settled. And so the only solution I have is to get out of the canoe. Okay, so I get out of the canoe, I get us off, but here's the problem, you're in rapids. You get the canoe off, he wants to go forward. So I'm holding on to the canoe, trying to get it, Luke's in there, no paddle, nothing, you know, just sitting on the front with his life jacket on, like looking at me, Dad, he come, and so I jumped to get back in the canoe, weight distribution wasn't good on the jump. Whole canoe, over, right? Now this is what they told us at the canoe place. To turn these canoes over, you really have to try to get them to turn over. I really did not try to get that canoe to turn over, and it turned over nonetheless, all right? It's over, I mean, completely over everything we have. In the water, floating away, goodbye, see you later, Gatorades. Luke had this one souvenir from Disneyland that he loved. That's a squirt bottle fan kind of thing. See you later. Good to have you. The only thing, it's a providential thing of God. The only thing that was left was a cooler that was floating that I had stuck my insulin pump in the front of, which is a four or $5,000 piece of medical equipment. And it was dry and floating there by it. And so I grabbed that. I grabbed the boat so it doesn't go away. Luke is now floating down the river. (laughs) 
I turn the boat back over and I walk the thing yelling at Luke, not in a mean way, just like, you know, because this is the this is the everything around you has gone into chaos. Let's calm down for a moment. So I'm like, Luke, could you make your way this way, please, Luke? Could you make it? I find a branch, grab the branch, grab the canoe, stick the cooler on top of the tree trunk that's lying there, like nestle it in, grab it here. The boat is full of water, not like kind of full of water, like you got to swim to get in the boat at this moment. And I'm sitting there. Susan and the rest of them have already made the corner around the edge and they're they're like way up there. I'm literally up a creek without a paddle because the paddles are gone. And I get Luke to the boat. Luke grabs onto the boat. I'm holding the limb. I'm holding the boat. And I think I have no clue what I'm going to do. So two things happen at that moment. This is the first one is legitimately what I thought. And it's ridiculous. My first thought was, what would Bear Grylls do in this moment? Do you know who Bear Grylls is? The survival guy. Like, what, what what do I got to do here? Like, you know, I don't have a paddle. Like, I got to break a limb off of this tree. And, I can see Susan looking at me coming down with a big stick, you know, doing that. And then I think we can't do anything until somebody comes by. Because I knew what I had to do. I had to turn the boat over. And then I had to lift the boat out of the water. And professional weightlifting is probably not in Luke's future either. And, you know, neither for me. And so, like, we tried it once. And that there, there was, like, God, it's, we're talking about Samson-like miracle for this to happen, all right? And so we're sitting there, and I'm just like, all right, you just start praying. Like, I, that is the most helpless I have felt in a long time. I don't have a phone with me because we didn't take our phones. Actually, my phone was in Susan's waterproof bag on her boat. It didn't do me any good. So I can't let anybody know. We were one of the last groups to go out that day. There's a chance nobody's coming, and I'm just there. So you start praying. Yeah. (laughs) And luckily, Maddie is not with us because that would have been. Listen, of all the things that we've recounted that were providential of God, that is one of them, that Maddie was not with us. Right. And then I see some kayakers start to come. And I think, oh, salvation is here. And it's three teenage girls. God, that's funny. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. One of them gets over to us. The other two, we can't get over there. We, we can't. Like, you don't want to get over here. Like, this is not the time for me to be mad at you, but right now, I really don't have time for you, so y'all just go ahead if you want to. One girl came over. She really tried to help, but we're there. Like, all right, maybe it's just us three. We're going to figure something out. We're going to hunker down for the night. I don't know. And then you see an EMT and an experienced kayaker come down the, the river. They help us get the boat over. We get in. He breaks down his kayak paddle to give me this short little paddle that I use to take us the rest of the way. Um, Which, by the way, another thing, as we're about to get to where we get out, I see something bobbing in the water. It's Luke's precious Disneyland souvenir. And I don't tell him because he would have gone overboard to go get the thing. And I'm like, I'm going to try to get by there. But just in the midst of that, I had just been reading and studying that morning about Paul and how God's not, God is not going to move in our lives until we understand how helpless we are to do anything about our situation. I mean, I, I literally didn't have a clue what I was going to do. And Paul 
blinded completely by the Lord. No idea what he's going to do. You and I, whether we know it or not, are spiritually blind without Christ. There are two ways we handle that. One is we're blind, but we just do everything we can to put ourselves first and to go away from what God intends for us to do. Or the second thing is we, we try to do so much good stuff to outweigh the bad. The problem is we can never outweigh the bad in our lives. The problems with our good deeds are they're hypocritical. They're trying to cover up our own mistakes and they will never be good enough to take away the sin that we've committed. And God arrests Paul in that moment and says, nothing you do is going to be good enough. It's only by my grace that you'll be saved and set free. Until you understand how helpless you are, you're not in a place to be helped. Third thing we see here, we're going to do these very quickly. The third thing is this. Your past does not disqualify you from God's grace. There is no one less deserving of forgiveness than Paul. Paul was a guy that literally killed Christians and then God saves him. What have you done? I mean, what have you done that would disqualify you from God? Remember that question I asked about in the beginning? That if I would, if I could do anything, what I want God to use me for is this. What have you done that disqualifies you from being used by God? Because God looks at you and says nothing. Your past doesn't disqualify you from God's grace. All of us are saved as sinners. People who are wretches in the sight of God, who are Worse than we even imagine in the sight of God. Nobody has better qualifications than anybody else for salvation. And the last thing is this. Your past does not disqualify you from future usefulness. This is what I think is so interesting. He doesn't just save Paul. I mean, that'd be an amazing story, right? He just saved Paul. Like, man, Paul's now on the team. I mean, that's unbelievable. He doesn't just save Paul. He takes the greatest enemy of Christianity and turns him into the greatest missionary that's ever lived. He can often take your biggest weakness and turn it into your biggest ministry. Over the course of the summer, we've seen that Jesus approached people and he expected them to listen, to understand that they couldn't do anything on their own, and then just to trust him and follow. That's what happens with Saul here. As he turns into Paul, as he begins to follow Jesus, he just listens, understands his own weakness, and follows Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Church, let me ask you a question. What's God calling you to do that you've been resisting because you don't know if you're good enough or qualified enough or if you're ready to sacrifice that much? What's he prodding you about? What's he goading you about? And what's keeping you from doing what God has called you to do? If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me ask you a question. What's keeping you from accepting the forgiveness he offers and the change of your life for eternity that he wants? Let's pray together.